Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. Welcome to this week's Follower Friday, episode 132 on The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. I'm Greg Frank, and I want to let you know on this show, we'll be featuring three subject matter experts from last month's Commodities People Conference in Houston. Our first guest is Brian Beebe, who is the Managing Director at Evolution Markets based in Houston. Brian leads a structured transaction team focusing on the renewable space, carbon emissions, and rec-related transactions. Now we'll play back some comments from Brian on carbon sequestration. Carbon sequestration projects are being talked about. Um, they're in existence in a handful of countries, but really in the U.S. and uh, North America, really have, have not really moved beyond kind of test experiment, experimentation phase. And part of the challenge has been lack of a consistent federal tax and, and credit regime associated with, uh, with, with, with carbon um, combined with a very expensive uh, technology base for carbon sequestration. So clearly, uh, when you look at the, uh, for example, if you look at the renewables market, there's been you know, dramatic cost decreases in technology and equipment. And it, it feels like the uh, we haven't seen that yet in the in the carbon sequestration market. Um, the technology itself needs to be um, probably more cost effective, and, and meanwhile, we need to have a uh, a more meaningful federal tax credit than than we what what we have today to incent these these large scale sequestration projects. You know, just for common. Listener, these these carbon sequestration projects; th- these are the land of the big boys. I mean, these are not going to be a hundred to three five hundred million dollar projects. You know, in all likelihood, these are going to be a billion dollar plus projects. So you you kind of limit the potential universe of participants to probably infrastructure funds, um, certainly oil and gas, both on a Kind of global uh, OG as well as regional players that may be looking for carbon sequestration uh, with respect to uh, enhanced oil recovery, which we see as a, uh, a theme in some of the early carbon sequestration projects like the Petronova facility outside of, of Houston. So feels very early stages, Mike. I think the, the industry is suffering a little bit because of the globally extremely high energy commodity price paradigm we find ourselves in. And I think carbon sequestration's moment w- will come, but it, we may need to go back to a, a more moderate energy landscape than we are today. So with regards to the defining that moderate pricing moment that we need to go back to to get this thing started, are you looking back to $80, $60, $40? When you look in your crystal ball, Brian Beebe, what do you think that number is? Well, I think it all probably starts with the uh, the signals from a, from a tax credit perspective. So there's been a lot of 
you know, viewpoints from the industry that the the federal tax credits simply aren't high enough for carbon and carbon sequestration. And, you know, meanwhile, we have a state by state, region by region carbon market where in some in some states there is no uh, centralized car- carbon market. Other areas like California are in many ways a leader in having a, you know well-regarded carbon market. So putting a price on carbon make, makes a, a lot of sense. And you find in the carbon markets at times some strange adherence to, to, the, to the topic. I mean, a good example in the power generation space, I was at a ERCOT power conference where the uh, the three largest thermal uh, generators in Texas uh, all said they would be in support of a carbon market. Pretty surprising to hear from entities that are in coal and and natural gas power production. But as long as there can be kind of a uniform price on carbon, I think that will uh, that will benefit the uh, the broader industry. Our next guest is Anush Chopra, who's going to talk about the difference between net zero versus real zero. But first, here's Anush to tell you a little more about his background. I'm an ex-merchant mariner. Uh, I sailed for 15 years. I ran ships for 20 years. Then I was 10 years in commercial shipping and on the environmental side, including sustainability. At this time, I'm an adjunct professor at University of Houston, and I also teach uh, I teach uh, supply chain management, and I also consult on the side with ESG Plus uh, LLC. Uh, I also sit on the board of uh, six uh, NGOs where I try to give back to society. So come back to uh, net zero. So the concept of net zero is uh, perhaps that's the first step companies are making to make themselves accountable. So they're not changing their operation a little bit, but what they're really trying to do is uh, buy credits from the marketplace for different types and then offset what they have consumed, either in the service or internally or both. So net zero is a great step because it sort of puts a price on the function which the company is doing and how uh, uh, that there's a will and there's money on the table for them to spend. Perhaps the next steps from net zero is to reduce their carbon footprint because then they have to buy fewer credits, they become more efficient and they work it from there. And then they move towards the real zero uh, where uh, they actually produce no carbon emissions. So at this time they are producing carbon emissions, they buy carbon credits offsets, and then they sort of neutralize it. And that is the net zero concept while when they try to go towards absolute zero, uh, that's the journey which challenges them in way of technology, in way of the carbon molecule itself, and how they plan to use that energy out of the carbon molecule without releasing it to the atmosphere. So there are various technologies in that place, but that's approximately where it looks like. Well, you know, everybody's got these lofty ambitions of being, you know, at a certain percent by 2050, you know, we want to be at 50% by 2050 or by 2040 or whatever the number is. But right now, all their choices really are because they can't move fast enough is the net zero by using offsets, whether that's an unbundled Rex or whether it's an RSG certificate or whatever it might be. That, that's what the reality is that we're in right now. And 
We hear so many people talk about that's just simply greenwashing and we shouldn't let that happen. What's your thoughts on that? Great point, Mike. So uh, when you're trying to offset and buy credits from the marketplace, a lot of us have seen that the same agricultural credits are being sold to different entities so that there's multiple sales and then the trees are cut and the wood is sold and then again the credits are generated. So yes, net zero is a good concept, but it needs to be backed up by real governance, good compliance to ensure that there's no greenwashing happening. Perhaps there are better quality of uh, offsets available like uh, technology offsets where you know companies are using improved technology to reduce their carbon footprint and then they monetize that. That is perhaps a better quality rather than just going for the green credits. Not all of them are bad. Please don't misunderstand me. However, uh, quite a few of them have been found to be tainted, as we may say. This is one of the reasons why EU has pushed very hard on green credits and their authenticity and verification before accepting them as real offsets. So are you saying some of those uh, credits that you think are kind of sketchy at best are kind of the ones that are self-claimed credits and they're not really monetized or uh, monitored, excuse me, they're not monitored and verified by a third-party agency? Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes, sir, that is correct. And they're not monitored throughout the life of the credit. You know, so we have a credit for this year and we sort of forget about it. And next year, the same credit goes to somebody else. And third year, that tree gets cut. And the fourth year, another credit gets generated. So we just want to be sure that we are ensuring if there are green credits being used, the companies to ensure that they follow the life cycle of that credit so that they don't get blamed or tainted later on by saying that you bought the cheapest credit on the market rather than good quality credits, which were actually doing better for our planet. Well, tell me this, are there people counting credits that they're buying, not putting them inside verified registries so they could be retired? And so is that part of the problem? The registries, there are four major registries, as I understand, which are functioning. Uh, all four are uh, NGOs, I believe. Uh, there's a fifth one which is set to be coming up and uh, challenging this paradigm. However, governance on them is not so transparent and the costs are also prohibitive. So uh, there are barriers to entry, there are barriers to verification and seems to be a closed door sort of operation. Maybe there's opportunity to make it more transparent, more open, more accessible. Yes, there should be a registry. Yes, there should be certification. Yes, there should be retiring of credits. However, we should not get stuck by closing that market where only a chosen few can play in that sandbox and it's not available for everybody. So that's really the limitation at this time. Very good. Well, when we jump over and talk about the real zero, the thing that pops into my head is how much is that going to cost? Okay. We know real zero has a real monetary cost to it. How do you think we get there because of that cost involved? 
A great point. So I normally start by saying that, remember, carbon is organic chemistry, and you and me are organic chemistry. So if we go to real zero and we remove carbon completely, then you and me won't exist. So that's important for us to appreciate. So real zero is a very nice aspirational claim, and each company can aspire for it where you have some amount of net zero and some amount of real zero, meaning you make some a real investment in technology and processes to reduce your carbon footprint, which is moving towards real zero, while at the same time offsetting what you produce. Uh, I think the magic bullet of real zero is still not there. It's elusive to all of us at this time. Maybe there'll be a new technology which will come up, but maybe the offset price will give that money incentive, that innovation, that research incentive for it to happen. And lastly, let's hear from Terry Embry, the VP Head of Trading and Marketing Operations for AES Clean Energy. Terry will be addressing how climate change has resulted in shorter solar days. There's, there's a couple of different scenarios where you may have a shorter than expected solar output uh, or hours from Typically, you would expect us to call it R&D 8 to R&D 17, 18. Um, one would be obviously the difference between summer and winter. So you've got a definitely a longer day in the summer. You get a couple more hours of sunlight there and uh, vice versa in the winter. Uh, also, if you're expecting cloud cover, whether it just be regular cloud cover, uh, cloud cover moving in, for example, in Southern California, you could see cloud cover moving in. You could easily lose five to eight gigawatts of solar and then have it come back 30 minutes later. Separately, if you're expecting a storm to roll in. So we have, we have quite a few assets in PJM where we are managing load on one side. So we have a, a short position to the load. And then we have the length on the other side, the generation. And we're matching them up in relatively flat book. But if we're expecting, for example, uh, a storm to roll in over PJM, over Dominion into, into uh, Virginia, and it's going to roll in midday, we have to understand that that generation won't be there. And we need to cover that in the market. So we're typically, you might be expecting, again, call it R&D 8 to 18 during the day. A storm rolls in. And uh, now we've only got it for half that. So we're, we're then short to that load and we need to cover that, whether it be in the balance of the day or uh, with something else from our portfolio. And so when you go cover that, so if you're, do you try to replace it with another green product or do you just need to have energy? Um, yes and no. Uh, so typically speaking, we have uh, some type of requirement on the other side to to fulfill a, a green obligation. If we can, if we have something else in our portfolio to replace it with, uh, in maybe another location, maybe we're going to wear a little basis risk, then we'll do that. Uh, if we have if we have no other choice, then we'll just have to cover it in the market with uh, tip, uh, energy from the grid. And then. Uh, 
whether you do have to use that energy from the grid, do you have to buy an unbundled rack to go with it? Or since it's just filling in the gap, it's okay just to use the regular brown brown power? Yeah, so typically we would we would say, well, that that would go against us for our uh, percentage of green. That would not uh, account for if somebody's looking for, call it 70, 80, 90% green energy, then that particular increment of power would count against us. That would be a kind of a penalty to us. So we can't we cannot use the brown power to to account for green energy and have it. Uh, uh, if somebody's looking for uh, X percent, it does not count towards that. That's great. Well, that's that's good information that we don't have a lot of people come on the Green Insider to say. So when I heard you at the conference here talking about it, I wanted to bring that to our uh, listeners ears so they could hear it from you. Uh, how did you enjoy the conference and had you been to very many of them in person before you went to the one here in Houston? I've been to a ton of conferences. Uh, I've been a pretty regular uh, speaker and uh, attendee for both ERCOT and uh, uh, Renewables probably over the last eight to 10 years. Um, this one was a new one for me. Um, it was a new one for me uh, as a speaker, but I. Fortunately, I, I knew a couple of other people on the panel, so that was made it a little bit more comfortable. I mean, it was good seeing everybody out again. Uh, you know, once we got through COVID, it was uh, uh, just nice to see people's faces again, really. It was. They had a great turnout, and I appreciate your time here today uh, talking to us. And uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Anytime, anytime. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you for listening to the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day and we were responsible for today's lesson. Be sure to tune in to next week's Follower Friday for part two of our conference recap series. Thanks a lot for listening and enjoy your weekend.